0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Catherine Cullen, a writer and performer who's spending the summer with Britta Johnson remounting their 2017 play Stupid Head for Outside the March. First is a series of live audio broadcasts starting tomorrow, Wednesday, July 7th, and then is live in-person performances bookable on porches and backyards in Toronto from July 20th to August 1st. It's a pretty intriguing model, and you should definitely check it out. Just look for Stupid Head at OutsideTheMarch.ca Catherine picked Bottle Rocket, the energetic 1996 indie that announced the arrival of three kids named Wes Anderson, Owen Wilson, and Luke Wilson into American cinema. Like most of Anderson's films, it's a movie about charismatic eccentrics limited by their own obsessions, in this case a small-time wannabe who wants to pull a heist, but a quarter century after its release, it's just as interesting for the elements the filmmaker didn't carry forward with him. You'll see. This is someone else's movie.
1: I first saw Bottle Rocket in high school. I think I was like 16. Um, And I, I think what I like initially was drawn to um, was just sort of like how like absurd these adults, adults were. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something like my 16 year old self like related to. Um, And And I I liked that they were sort of, or at least Dignan in particular was like so doggedly pursuing this sort of like ridiculous um, uh, dream of wanting to be like a excellent robber, um, like an excellent thief. Um, And he was like so clearly not, uh, not excellent at it. Uh, And I think that made a strong impression because like, you know, not to like fully segue to stupid head, uh, but just tangentially like so much of stupid head. Like I'm not a musical theater performer. Like I don't have like a pretty singing voice, all of those things, but I still wanted to, to make this like weird musical about, you know, my feelings about having dyslexia or like more than that, uh, feeling like you don't quite fit in or that you're struggling with, you're struggling with life in certain ways. And so it was like cool to watch someone who like struggled with life, but like didn't actually let it truly stand in their way, like to sort of like, yeah, doggedly pursue what they want in spite of not necessarily having all the tools to do it successfully. Um, And like, what is success, I guess. Um, And I like, I just, yeah, I really, I really love how those characters live outside of like societal norms in certain ways Um, and in ways I found really charming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there is a single character. I'm just having rewatched it again after I don't think I'd taken a look at it for at least 15 years, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, I was really surprised to see there are no normal characters, no. right? The closest is Bob Mapplethorpe, which yeah. oh, what a great name too. Uh, I love that character. He's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. he's He has a sense of what the world is supposed to be. Yeah. And it constantly creates friction with everyone around him, which is great because he clearly has no one else to play with. Right, yeah. he just surrounds himself with these fantasists, people who have decided they're amoral outlaws. Well, not being—I mean, they're yeah. I was trying to figure out how to how to put it because it is the thing that defines so many of Wes Anderson's movies to me is that his characters operate along rigid codes, mm. which are inexplicable. They—they mm-hmm. they don't. None of them has the words. Mm-hmm. Max Fisher can't articulate anything. He mm-hmm. can just tell people what he wants and mm-hmm. he's insistent enough that people follow him. And that's clearly the same with Dignan who, who you know, he's going to get himself hurt or killed yeah. At, yeah. at every opportunity. He just endangers everything and everyone around him, Yeah, but he's a fucking innocent, right? Yeah, like that's, yeah, that's his yeah. thing. He yeah. He has this, this, that Owen Wilson idiot charm where you just want to see what happens next because he'll totally. probably hurt himself
1: more than anybody else. Totally.
0: But he's, yeah, that it's like, it's not anti charisma, it's genuine charisma. But what Wilson and Anderson do with that script and with him, like he knows what he can get away with as an actor, I think, which is something mm-hmm. a lot of young actors don't necessarily understand.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
0: watching that performance now. Jesus, 25 years later. Yeah. Um, in the with all of the things that Wilson has done and all of the things that Anderson has done in the rearview mirror, it was, it felt like it must have felt then, which is how did you know you could get away with this? And how did this happen? And just why?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also feel like when I watch his performance, Owen Wilson's performance, I feel like it's sort of like he's like a child who wants to play with other other children, yeah. except they're unfortunately all like technically adults, you know? And like there's that scene in the diner when um it's like Dignan and Anthony. And Anthony's told Dignan that he told that he knew Bob was gonna leave uh with right. the car. And he's like drawing that picture of Inez with the horse and the like sparkles or whatever. And I was just like looking at that scene and um on Anthony's side there's like there's like a empty um booth on on like to the back of him but on mm-hmm. Dignan's side there's two children um just on the on his side and i was like oh director statement maybe but like <laughs> it's me and that's like the de- like, <laughs> that's kind of all I have in terms of in-depth analysis but um but I just sort of uh I just was like oh yeah he's totally there's the even though he's sort of so frustrating and makes such like kind of insane cho- life choices um uh you love him because he is so childlike. And there is that sort of, as you said, like this innocence and how can you not, um, how can you not sort of like rally around him a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah. And even as it destroys everything around him, I mean, he, I, I was trying to figure out if he alienates people, but he doesn't, he just leaves that he, he ditches them. He convinces himself that it's him who's walking away. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out whether, the complete absence of parents is deliberate as a commentary Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. you know, they rob Anthony's mother's house, but we never see Anthony's mother. Mm -hmm. We see his sister, his kid Mm -hmm. sister once as a, as a truth teller.
1: Yeah. He's the most adult person in the entire (laughs) movie.
0: Yeah. Which was a real trope right around then too. And I was trying to figure out if it was commentary on stuff like beautiful girls where Natalie Portman is the old soul. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, But I think it's just, I think they're supposed to be presented as equals. I think we're supposed to see that it's not that she's a grown-up; it's that Anthony isn't, right? Yeah. Like that he's just as he's indulgent of Dignan, and he gives him his escape at the beginning, and he lets him have things that are the right choice for Dignan, but the wrong choice for you know a healthy relationship with Dignan. Yeah. And his indulgence of him—it's like you know—it's your it's your twelve-year-old friend telling you that you can get into an R-rated movie if you just follow his lead, right? Yeah. This, they've never stopped having that. They've never stopped relating to each other on that level.
1: No. And there's a way, and, and in that sense, it's like they both hold each other back. Uh, certainly Dignan yeah, holds yeah. Anthony back, you know?
0: Yeah. And um, I think Anthony, by not encouraging Dignan to wake up, is holding mm-hmm. him back too. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's absolutely a, a codependent thing that's mm-hmm. going on between them. And it's it's really remarkable watching it again that nobody gets killed or hurt. Mm -hmm. We're even told specifically that Applejack gets out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. He just Mm -hmm. doesn't speak to them afterwards.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That there are consequences, but nothing permanent. Yeah, and that seems to fit. That also seems to fit Anderson's future worldview, because he really does withhold tragedy in so many of his movies. Like in *Royal Tenenbaum*, Mm -hmm. the um, Ben Stiller's wife dies before the movie begins, and the rest of it is like Royal lives. uh, We're told how Royal will die, but we don't see it, and his uh, Life Aquatic is again; it's about a past tragedy. It's about people yeah. living with the weight of stuff. But the oh, wait—that's not true. He kills somebody at the end of Life. Okay, bad example. Right. But he's he's very <laughs> but, very yeah. specific about where he brings the hammer down. Yeah. And I think maybe more than anything, that's why people see his films as as fantasy. I mean, now he's tilted off entirely into that world. Yeah. But the melancholy that underlies all of them comes from like the denial of death within the reality of the film and also by the characters, by the people who, I mean, we don't even know if Anthony's dad's alive. We just, we know it's his mom's house. Yeah. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's deliberate. I mean, there's, there's no reason to believe anything in this film isn't deliberate given how obsessive a filmmaker Anderson is. Yeah. But as a film about people clinging to each other, mm-hmm. I think it's one of his purest.
1: It's, it's actually my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's a bit, it was also the first Wes Anderson movie I ever saw. So it's Mm -hmm. one of those things where you're like your loyalty sort of can kind of glom onto the first movie of the, um, of the director's work. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of just like, um, um, I think there's just like the, the particular whimsy of Bottle Rocket is something that I really like glommed onto, um, and you're right. Like, I mean, I'm mean, just thinking like Dignan goes to jail at the end, but it he doesn't seem hard done by it. Like he's, he's sort of perfectly comfortable there. And, and it's not, um, yeah, he, he's, he's just as happy in jail sort of imagining his escape than, than he is in the outside world and maybe yeah. even happier, you know, yeah. and, and it's curious too, to me to sort of think about like the ways that, um, Dignan in particular, but I guess all of like Anthony and Bob are trying to like make their mark on the world. Like why, like, like they want to feel like they're important in some way. Um, but it's like so half-assed and so like, like ridiculous, um, and childlike Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they all have things I think in their lives that make them feel completely unimportant or, or like, like maybe that they're, they are a bit nothing.
0: Yeah, well, Bob's brother, Future sure. Man, which is such a great self-imposed nickname, uh, yeah. and so clearly his own thing, Yeah, um, tells people that Bob has run away from home, and Bob has that great moment of, I'm 26, I didn't run yeah. away from home. But, yeah. you know, my brother's, I have a, a brother who's 19 months younger than me, and I think we still, like, we're in our 50s, and we still snap into relating to each other that way, and I, yeah. I get that, that feels incredibly <laughs> observant yeah. uh, of the film to just yeah. constantly show us how the world keeps them younger or smaller than they, they feel like they should be. And Dignan, yeah. obviously like, he has no parents that we see. He has no other friends. Um, and he is stuck uh, in, this, yeah. in this place.
1: Yeah. There's like serious arrested development with him and, and no sort of like, seems like there's no desire for any kind of romantic relationships or like really anything outside this like little club that he's trying to create for himself. Yeah,
0: he doesn't want to go out with them. He doesn't want to go to the bar with them. When he does go, he picks a fight with people yeah. and gets himself beaten up. Yeah. There's that little moment where yeah, where Rocky translating says tell him she loves you. Yeah. Tell him I love you. And yeah. he is completely flummoxed. Like it's yeah. it's a great performance choice, I have to say from from Owen Wilson. Yeah. The way he just stops dead and thinks. Yeah. And tries to make it make sense.
1: Yeah, like no, and and that in that way too, like you're sort of reminded of his self-absorption. Like he mm-hmm. doesn't think beyond, right? Of course, like Inez Anthony, like this relationship I've been witnessing this entire time. Like he's he is, um, uh, yeah, he's really self-absorbed. Um, all the characters are to some extent for sure, but Dignan, I would say, like, is the most self-absorbed, and yet, like, is so charming and and um, kind of lovable. But yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's that Don Quixote quality, right? Like he's mm-hmm. the hero of his own story, which he is making up as he goes uh, at the expense of everyone else's stories.
1: Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even
0: when he's threatening people at gunpoint, you somehow don't... That was the first time through. I was like, okay, somebody's going to get shot. That gun is going to go off. We've mm-hmm. seen them playing with it for the entire... Like that's the checkoff principle. It's mm-hmm. going to happen. Someone's going to get killed. It's probably going to be Dignan. He will be the, the thing that the movie sacrifices to teach Anthony a lesson. But... Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Like Mm -hmm. he sacrifices himself by letting the cops chase him, Mm -hmm. but it's not a sacrifice then either. It's just him completing his destiny of being this, this outlaw that he thinks he is.
1: Yeah. Which is interesting. Like, yeah. Why? Because he seems like it, it is a bit sort of interesting to, to like, um, you know, I wonder about why he's so obsessed with like breaking the law and being this outlaw when he's kind of ultimately this sort of like tender, <laughs> tender, so, like a highly sensitive, like man child, you know, I mean? you know, like yeah, it just yeah. sort of feels like, um, there's nothing about him that feels like hardened or like cynical. Um, so it's interesting when he's so obsessed with becoming this, uh, yeah, this like criminal mastermind.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like the guy who buys a hat in high school and that's his identity. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you can't tell him mm-hmm. that a hat isn't an identity. It's a great hat. He can't mm-hmm. see past it.
1: Totally. And I, you know, and I was just thinking too, like, you know, if Dignan, someone who like, uh, I remember at one point he mentions that um, he can't, they can't rob his house because uh, it's mom and Craig And so like, there's no father, real father figure there. And then, you know, Mr. Henry comes into his life and is this sort of like charismatic, powerful man. You sort of think, oh, Dignan's really just trying to be, um, trying to, to win over Mr. Henry's affections, the sort of father figure that maybe he never had.
0: Yeah. And also get taken by him, Like, how, how this is not going to work. And I don't know that the first time through I could see through Khan. I was watching him again this time and and trying to see if there are tells, but it's not that kind of movie, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're supposed to be as blindsided by it as the characters are, Mm -hmm. that he's just clearly a weird guy who's using Dignan. But at first it seems like they have a common purpose. And then gradually, not even gradually, then we're just sort of shocked where there's that cut to them loading the, the moving truck up. And it's like, Oh, of course.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that reveal. It's so clever.
0: He's not even sorry.
1: Yeah, no, it's just like, you think um, Mr. Henry's like fully on their side and, you know, and when he stands up to future man on behalf of Bob in the, in the country club, you're like, oh yes, this is, this is the father that they all need to sort of like, you know, wrangle them all in and make them feel cared for. And then he completely, completely (laughs) abandons them in the worst way.
0: Yeah, that Grand Piano must have been worth at least $10,000. It's such a great line, too, because it's so yeah. completely uninformed. I mean, yeah. I'm sure even in 1996, Grand Pianos cost more than that.
1: Yeah, no, I know. They but just it just tells that.
0: you how small time Dignan is on yeah. so many levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I first saw it, it was in 96. It it was the theatrical, it must have been a preview screening, I guess. And it was just one of those movies where every expectation I had went sideways into it. It's just, hmm. this is going to be another, because it, it felt like an answer film to a lot of the post-Tarantino neo-noir stuff. And weirdly enough, there've been a couple of movies in the last few weeks on the show that deal with similar uh, waves, where just the the thing came along because of this moment that someone else was doing. And it rode a wave that it doesn't belong to. Like Bottle yeah. Rocket is a film about people who watch Tarantino movies except that there are no movies in the film like there's no these characters don't sit around watching movies but Dignan would like he would have grown up on or not grown up it was only four years ago but he would have watched Reservoir Dogs and come away inspired yeah and and weirdly enough um if you've seen the short film that that Anderson and Wilson made
1: yeah I've never seen I've always wanted to though
0: yeah it's on the Criterion Blu-ray and I'm sure it's floating around on their channel now or something but it's it's black and white it is almost Verite style. It's all handheld. It's nothing like you would expect from Wes Anderson as huh. we now know him, but it feels like Clerks. Huh. Like it's just a bunch of guys hanging out and talking. He, they couldn't afford to shoot the robbery of the bookstore, so they shot around it, huh. um, and changed the way. Of it. it's like the three guys, it's the same three actors: the Wilsons and, and um, Musgrave, Robert Musgrave. Is it? I, th- um, I, think, so. Bob. I think so. Um, the three of them sitting outside a burger joint talking about it. Okay, but it feels like because and also because it was made in 1993 and everybody's younger, it really right. feels like it came right out of the Kevin Smith stream instead of the Tarantino stream. And then when yeah. they made the movie, it's more Tarantinoized because it's you know chatty criminals, except that it's completely different. And now it feels like it's a completely original, different evolution of that thing, yeah. like a mutation almost. Yeah, but I remember at the time wrestling to make sense of it because it did have chatty people talking about heists, and it is kind of a heist movie in that it delivers one in the end. It just doesn't go well at all,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it seemed like such a uh, an outlier even then. And now, mm-hmm. the mo- now it feels different because you watch it in the rear view of all of uh, Anderson's subsequent films. And there are moments where there's a centered image or, you know, you get a, a shot of the, of Dean's notebook with the precise organizational thing that Anderson loves so much. And you're like, Oh yeah, Wes Anderson. And then it yeah. goes on to handheld tracking shots and, and, unful- and unbalanced, unbalanced uh, compositions and things that don't feel like Wes Anderson at all. So at the time it didn't feel like it belonged to Tarantino. And now weirdly it feels like it doesn't belong to Anderson.
1: Yeah. I, I could, I, I, I see that for sure. And I think that's partly why I like it so much too, because it feels like it's in this like kind of no man's land a little mm, bit. And, yeah. and it's not like, I mean, I, 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 I like Wes Anderson films. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like a massive Wes Anderson fan, but I totally like Love Rushmore, um, uh, Tenenbaums. Um, I haven't seen a lot of the more recent ones. Um, but I think I like that it's not as stylized as some of his later films are um because it's like fi- it's like finding itself in certain ways but it's still its own aesthetic um yeah and you you have to sort of catch up to what it's trying to be or what it or what it is um and you're sort of always trying to figure out are, is this a weird comedy is this like set, you know like what is this and I think um I think I really, yeah, I really like that I, because there's something really like honest about it to, to me um, for, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The one thing that feels consistent with the rest of his films is that his musical choices are so precise and so yeah. like the, they're not retro, they're archival in a way that's really wonderful. Yeah, Just as like Rushmore was scored with mod music. Yeah. This film is referencing love song, like songs by the band Love and a bunch of other uh, appropriate artist. There's a Rolling Stones track, which amazes me because I guess when you have James L. Brooks behind you, you can get that. But it seems like it would have been beyond. How his they record
1: it? <laughs> I love, I love the soundtrack to Bottle Rocket. That's actually one of the things I love so much about that movie is yeah. the soundtrack. And it's always the same. Um, is always the same person, the same man, the same guy?
0: Oh, the score, Mark Mothersbaugh. The score,
1: yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did most of his films right up until I think the last one he did was it was and uh, maybe it was moonrise kingdom or maybe that's when they switched over to display i think okay but yeah mother's ba- I mean the score for tenenbaums bombs and for rushmore in particular i just i love them so much but so yeah great. you can feel their their relationship is here too it's 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 fully formed
1: yeah 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 no i i and i like i love the landscape like i love that they're in this like deserty area and um uh, there's something like where actually where are they where is the movie set Dallas it's Texas. set in Dallas
0: yeah or in and around Dallas I, the, they never call attention to it but the, um, the police cars at the very end have DFW on them
1: okay because they so never explicitly cool. say where they are but you like you can if you pay close enough attention clearly you can figure it out
0: Yeah, yeah, the border isn't far, right? There's yeah. there's a there's a large Spanish-speaking Latino influence. There are people. Yeah. And and that's the other thing. He's always had a blind spot for minorities, or not a blind spot, but he seems less concerned with them. Yeah. Uh, as characters, as people, like he, the treatment of um uh Danny Glover's character in in Tenenbaum's sort of
1: is mm-hmm. emblematic
0: of, of this weird thing he has. And it's kind of like a patrician regard for people of color. Mm-hmm. This is the movie where you don't see that. It feels like yeah. Inez is at least a three-dimensional character. And then maybe Rocky has some moments too, where he gets to be a person instead of a, a character point for other people, like a, a development point for everybody else.
1: Yeah, precisely. I was, I was kind of like reflecting on that this time around. Cause it, again, it has been so long since I've seen it, but I was really trying to pay, pay close attention to how Inez's character is treated, um, and Rocky as well. And, um, I, I did feel like, yeah, you, you get different pieces of her and different aspects of her. Like, like she as you said is, is three-dimensional. Um, and their, their love story is three-dimensional Anthony's and yeah. Inez is like, it doesn't feel like this sort of like him projecting necessarily all this stuff onto her, uh, maybe initially, but it seems like they actually do find each other truly and see each other truly um, throughout the film.
0: Yeah. There's definitely a power imbalance when they first meet Exactly and the yeah. way he follows her around is it's just short of creepy. I like guess it, it, it's, it's inappropriate. Yeah. But I think again, with like, as with Dignan's innocence, Anthony is genuine. And yeah. by the time he's helping her fluff pillows and sort of wandering around with her, like a puppy, it, it feels like she's holding all the cards. Like there's a there's a very, very subtle switch by the time they make it to the third room that they're making up that day. Yeah. Where she's in charge. And yeah. and you can sort of see it in Lumi Cavazo's performance where she isn't totally sure what to do with this guy and then gradually warms to him. Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's an, a very like childlike view of how relationships work too. So in a weird way, the film is maintaining that that vibe. Like she's I couldn't tell if she was recapturing a more innocent flirtation or if she just enjoys the attention, but yeah, Inez is steering. Within yeah. 20 minutes of the meeting.
1: Absolutely. And you know, when she, when she like, um, tells him very frankly, she's not going with him and, and, you know, he doesn't like he's upset, but he, he respects her, uh, you know, her desires and needs. Like there isn't any sort of like, um, yeah, it feels like at that point they're they're both like individuals with their own desires and, you know, as upset as he is, he like respects her wishes. So I I yeah, I felt like I I felt like that relationship was actually quite sweet and at least like relatively well like teased out on both on for both of them. Yeah. Um to say I recently Kind of rewatched Rushmore, which I hadn't in a long time. And I was like, oh, there's some stuff here that's like really creepy <laughs> in terms of Max and and the, the teacher that he pursues. Like he yeah. doesn't
0: age well. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, like almost immediately after this film, his take on sexuality and power dynamics and relationships, it's very sour, very fast. Yeah. There's a lot of ugliness around the relationships in Royal Tenenbaums. And um, there's a whole thing that's, that it's even in, uh, I can't remember the hotel.
1: Oh, Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel.
0: No, no, no. Um, that's actually where it gets back to being weirdly yeah, really enough. Yeah. No, there's a, there was a short film included with the Darjeeling limited. Okay. That introduces Natalie Portman as uh, Jason Schwartzman's girlfriend. And it's just them. Having uncomfortable sex in a hotel room and talking. And it's really weird. And it sets hmm. up a lot of the problems that Schwartzman has. And clearly it was designed as the prologue and then cut and released separately. It's on the mm-hmm. Blu-ray and it was it played with it theatrically. Mm-hmm. But it's just one of those things where you think, how does the filmmaker perceive romance? How does he see a romantic gesture? Yeah. And then you see something like Moonrise Kingdom, which is again, it's a return to the innocence of Bottle Rocket. And that sort of sets up the relationships or the the romance between um, Tony Revolori and uh, uh, Shersha Ronan in in the Grand Mm -hmm. Budapest Hotel, which is also sweet and very, very tragic, but Mm -hmm. he kind of had to, it felt like he had to purge all that stuff to get back to delicacy again. And maybe there was a bad relationship. I don't, I don't know, but there's 10 years where he's just making really unpleasant choices for his characters, romantic lives. And none of that is in Bottle Rocket, which is sort of lovely.
1: Yeah, I think that's also, like, there's something uncomplicated about Bottle Rocket, um, which, again, I like. And I was, like, really, I was a bit worried when I, I, again, I wanted to rewatch it for our our chat. And I was like, oh, God, what if there's stuff in it that, like, I find out it was like, oh, that sucks. Like, I forgot about that. Or, like, I didn't think critically about that at the time. But, uh, you know, rewatching it, I felt, like, largely it all, like, yeah, it all kind of holds up. yeah, so that sounds good.
0: <laughs> it's good, yeah. I know it's always a relief to revisit something that's <laughs> yeah. you know older than five years and realize it hasn't it's gone it's sour or dated yeah. horribly. I mean, I think the stuff in Rushmore is deliberate. I mean, I, I think we're supposed to see that Max is immature in his pursuit of Rosemary, um, but it gets ugly. Like it, it gets does. really tense and unpleasant, especially when she stands up to him and dresses yeah. him down with, with, you know, what would you tell your friends? That's yeah. so painful.
1: You know, I know, and I couldn't. I couldn't figure out if the movie was actually trying to like comment on that like um, more critically, or if it's sort of only going so deep with how it understands how toxic that dynamic is. Like that's what I sort of feel like. I don't. I don't quite know where the director is sitting with this because Max is so sort of like well because he's like the protagonist
0: yeah and in a weird way the storyteller I mean I think the fact that it opens and closes with those curtains is telling us that we're watching a Max Fisher production like this is his memoir
1: yeah
0: so he sees it all as as defensively and personally as as you would imagine he would see it but Yeah. yeah it's it's a difficult line to walk aesthetically to yeah to get the audience to understand that and to to maintain it for the full running time sometimes it's Uh, sometimes it just does not land, but yeah. Rushmore. Oh, I love it so much. (laughs) I refuse (laughs) to say, refuse to say a bad thing about it, but there is stuff in there that is absolutely from the, from the outside perspective. uh, If you were, if you were Max's dad, you'd be horrified
1: to know
0: what he was doing and what was going on and how he saw other people. And it is something that recurs in Anderson's movies. So yeah, maybe it was Wilson's influence in, Bottle Rocket that just kept it sweeter.
1: Yeah, because he co wrote. How many did he co? They he co wrote the Bottle first w-
0: three Bottle Rocket, okay. Rushmore, and Tenenbaums. Yeah. Um, I think after that, they splintered. Like Wilson okay. was just, I think it was just because Wilson was making movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, became a became a movie star, which again, from this, there's no question he's going to be one. It's um, it's kind of weird that Luke became one because he's he, not that he's bad, but he's so recessive as an actor in this film that mm-hmm. that Owen blows him away.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but
0: they both managed to have good careers, and and yeah, watching Owen Wilson now show up in in Marvel's Loki, um, it's just and be perfectly cast for what he's doing there. It's just such yeah. a strange. I, I did not think that the guy from bottle rocket would end up here.
1: I know in this like indie, like, yeah. Strange. Yeah. Like where he's sort of this um, anti-hero. Yeah. No, I know me neither. Um, Yeah. I, I, he's, he's so charming in that movie. So charming. Um, You were talking about the Wilson brothers and then um, uh, funny to me as well, that future man is also there third brother
0: that's right i always forget that
1: because it doesn't quite look like them i know he's a bit of a slightly different wilson a not famous wilson so he is their brother
0: he's the the ted hemsworth
1: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i think that's also why i like bottle rocket is it feels like because it's the beginning of all of their trajectories like Mm -hmm. wes anderson the wilson's it just there's something about it that feels like a family affair like it's sort of like people sort of scrappily working to like get a vision out there and there's so there's something kind of like nice about that because it's yeah it's the very I, right the very first thing that they really did that yeah. that kind of made a big mark um so i think that's also why i like it too yeah
0: it does feel like a collaborative act of love like it mm-hmm. just it couldn't have happened if everyone didn't really try to believe in it and and nurture mm-hmm. it and get over the obvious shortcomings like they didn't have a lot of money and they didn't, they wanted to shoot it in anamorphic, but the tests didn't work to their satisfaction. There's a whole section on the criterion just about it. And it's just a great film school for people who are starting out on the same level, but they mm-hmm. also had uh, James L. Brooks and, and Richard Sakai who at the time were producing the Simpsons and just commissioning things left and right because they mm-hmm. could. And Polly Platt who mm-hmm. was one of the the essential believers in the, in the project in the first place. And it nurtured them. It mm-hmm. allowed them to be as eccentric as they wanted and even risk failure and make this mm-hmm. tiny little indie that now, yeah, has launched all these other careers.
1: What do you think it's like ultimately about? What do you think the movie's sort of like saying? <laughs> do I think you have a, a sense?
0: I, I think if anything, it's about the, I mean, the obvious, the obvious thing is toxic masculinity. Which mm-hmm. it's not about. I think mm-hmm. it I think it that's the I think that's the dodge. I think it's about people who have far too much confidence and no preparation. Mm-hmm. And there is that certain white privilege thing of I'm going to be an outlaw because I'm the white guy and no one's gonna bother me that Daniel yeah, like, carries with him. Like he thinks he's invisible and he kind of is. Yeah. But he thinks it's because he's so clever and it's really because he's not threatening.
1: Yeah. Like he runs from the cops at the end of that movie and like they do nothing, but I mean, they, they run after him, but they don't shoot him. They don't,
0: yeah. Yeah, they don't they hurt the him. not out of him at the end, but that's more yeah. out of irritation, I think. Than it yeah. But there is a moment, I think it's deliberate given the way uh, Anderson handles racial questions in other movies. I don't know that it is, but I want it to be mm-hmm. uh, where at the very end, when Dignan is going back into the, to the prison, like where he's returning after the visitation, the guy behind him is an older black man who Mm -hmm. clearly is not putting up with any of this shit. He's he's not angry, but he's Mm -hmm. tired. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's just that the extra was hot that day, Mm -hmm. but it reads like a larger commentary on his, on Dignan's aspirations and how foolish they are because this guy's in prison for probably a long time and probably for nothing.
1: Yeah. If
0: if he's in the same place as Dignan, who was a minimum security idiot, no matter what right? he's not going to hard time anywhere yeah and that seemed to say more than the movie knows it's saying or it's just incredibly subtle and deliberate and maybe it's james l brooks saying you need to have a commentary yeah but it felt like that's if that's the take he kept he kept it for a reason
1: yeah i or maybe agree just
0: clinging to it
1: um i think there's definitely something there because it it is sort of it is it feels pointed in some way it doesn't feel like there's it's an accident that that as you said like that he's in the frame and like that you can read expression off of him like mm-hmm. it's that there's there is something sort of being communicated there um yeah i guess the question is like how intentional was that and is it supposed to be a larger commentary or is it just um you know uh something that was communicated that he kept yeah um, happy
0: accident that works yeah, the film.
1: yeah 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 i think that's really interesting um Yeah, I was watching it last night, and I think when I initially saw it when I was, like, a teenager, I didn't think, more like, I didn't think deeply about, like, what is this movie trying to say? I just sort of, like, liked it, and I, like, there's, like, so many great lines that me and my friends would, like, quote, and just be, like, on the run from Johnny Law, you know, trip to Cleveland, and, you know, like, uh, I'm Jerry, and this is my associate Cornelius. Like, it was just, like, so many good lines that you can sort of rattle off, but I was thinking, like, this time around beyond like all the quippy lines and and the stuff that I remember as being like sort of like iconic to that movie, what it was trying to say. And I was, yeah, I just I I didn't really like uh sort of grab onto a specific answer. So I was just kind of curious to to hear what you thought. Um yeah, I mean I do think a little bit like uh, uh this is kind of in rushmore too that like the, your imaginative, your fantasy world is so much more interesting than reality and reality is like adult and boring. And when you're not someone who wants to like fit into the sort of like slots that society wants you to fit into, I think there is something that the movie is grappling with there. Um, you know, like in that scene with Anthony and Dignan at the pool at uh, future man's house and that like his girlfriend is like talking to Anthony about how he went to the Um, mental institution and um just sort of like you get this flash of them um having gone to college and like where's everyone going and you know this person you know like what happened to this person and what happened to this person and this person's a dentist now or this person's whatever and and they're just these total outsiders to what um to what everyone else sort of ended up doing with their lives
0: Yeah, Dignan was so focused on being an outlaw that all he did was a landscaping gig that he got fired from.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, it does speak to his commitment. It's just the wrong kind of commitment. He's just, and presumably, he's wanted to do this since he was eight or something because he does have a, an incredibly un well, I was going to say an unevolved, but it's really immature, right? He has an immature view of the way the world is supposed to work. And then every time we think that Anthony is the grown up, he'll do something like draw Inez on a horse and it's like, Oh, you're a child. Of course you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of them.
0: Yeah, But he's lucky enough to have Inez and maybe grow up.
1: Yeah. And it's also interesting that Inez is the only one that's like, I'm thinking about who has jobs and like, who's sort of like in the real world and like Mm -hmm. living their lives and taking responsibility for their lives and, I think Inez is the only person in that whole movie, and Rocky as well, who are, and uh, everyone well, I mean, else Mr. Henry
0: has a plan. Mr.
1: Henry has a plan. He Mr. has, he has a plan, his shit and he's, together. He's and just, he, he totally has his shit together. He's just, um, just an asshole about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But he's being the kind of grown-up that Weirdly enough, I don't think Dignan would want to be like. Even though he, Dignan wants to rob people and and steal stuff, I don't think he wants to hurt anyone. And no. and Mr. Henry's actions are very very personal. Yeah, you know, it's about betrayal and and winning someone's trust, which is you know that's a successful con man.
1: Yeah, uh, Mr. Henry is like kind of sociopathic, whereas Dignan is just like immature and caught in a in a like really limited fantasy version of life.
0: Yeah, yeah. and when you you know you look at one of the criticisms that's leveled against Anderson's films over and over again is that he's not telling real quote unquote, real stories, whatever those are. Mm. Um, I like the metaphors he chooses and I find Mm -hmm. them pretty moving sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I can sort of see where, if you track it all the way back to this, yeah, this is the kind of story he tells. He tells stories about people who aren't ready to grow up yet or who aren't ready to be adults in the world. And when he does tell adult stories, they're, fantastic mr fox or isle of dogs like they're they're abstracted to a way that he can deal with them
1: yeah that's interesting yeah Yeah, that's really that's really true
0: oh that's a thesis
1: yeah (laughs) the theme of of yeah not being able to grow up in wes anderson's movies Mm -hmm.
0: unless you do it through playing with toys and life aquatic actually with the stop motion monsters it kind of does the same thing
1: yeah okay
0: i think i solved it you
1: figured it out (laughs)
0: Certainly, for my own development, um, it, it's a weird segue to make. Though um, mm-hmm. you're currently working on a play, which is going to be performed live, but also a radio play version of itself, and that, in a weird way, does feel kind of Andersonian. It, it does feel like you're creating an additional, but a, a layer of remove from the right. from the material in order to tell it differently. Is that is that um, deliberate pull from his films or was there an influence there in any way? Cause usually at the end of an episode, I ask whether or not um, someone has drawn inspiration from the film they've chosen. And and I'm trying to figure out how it would mm. work with stupid head, but I'm really, I'm curious.
1: Hard. Yeah. It's, it is a, it's a, it's a tough bridge to sort of like cross. <laughs> no um, you can but, always
0: say no people do.
1: I mean, I think, I think if I were to say influence wise or like what I might have taken from ball rocket and and put into stupid head it would just be more of the themes around like living in a fantasy mm-hmm. like I think I think it's creative content reflects more um the influence of of like living in a fantasy world and like wanting that world to be so real mm-hmm. um, like, I want to be a musical theater star. And so here's my weird show about that or whatever. Um, um, Kind of like, yeah, like how Dignan, how Dignan sort of decides what he wants his life to be, despite the fact that um, that's kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of impossible. And he's not actually like, Uh, equipped to to create that successfully I I but he's doing it anyways I think that's where I can see like the links between like Bottle Rocket and that sort of like weird magic um that I kind of wanted in Stupid Head in terms of like the the sort of form um doing this radio play like in all honesty it's just a way to like bring the show to to make the show accessible in a time in a global pandemic (laughs) and, and, and to like people who would like to come to the live version, but maybe like, aren't able to, for any number of reasons. Um, so I, I feel like in terms of, yeah, in terms of the radio version and, and like, it will be interesting to sort of deal with, as you said, this like added limitation because the show is really, uh, an intimate show that, um, you know, has involved an audience and there's lots of comedic elements. And so it'll be weird to not have like that feedback, that laughter. Um, So I think like figuring out how that's going to sort of inform it and change it and ideally make it um, even more intimate in some ways, you know, like some of my favorite, and not that it's a podcast, but some of my favorite podcasts where you're like really listening to someone's, um, you know, amazing story like This American Life or, or I don't know if you listen to Heavyweight, but I really like that podcast too.
0: I do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, he listens to this, which is sort of great. I, oh, that's I, was, so cool. I discovered he was a fan. And so, yeah, I think he'd appreciate this too. <laughs>
1: This uh, plug for, <laughs> sure. for him. No, it's um, great. And yeah, yeah.
0: The phrase I was thinking of or the, the term I was thinking of was artifice, like the, yeah. the, the artifice. radio play would put a level, uh, put a layer of artifice between the audience and the and the listener yes. in a way, or, and that performer in a way that could serve it really well.
1: Yeah. And I think, again, like we're, we're trying to figure out exactly how that artifice will, will work with something that we also want to feel really intimate as well. And, uh, and I think, yeah, maybe, maybe, um, maybe there's a way to have the artifice and the intimacy, like interact in a way that I feel like it does in Bottle Rocket, you know, like the honesty and the sort of the artifice I think work really well together in a in a very simple way in that movie that maybe I can sort of like take from and fuse into this, into this radio play. But um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, I, I find like there's a sort of element of magic to, to Wes Anderson that I, or Wes Anderson's films uh, that I'm hoping to sort of like sprinkle into this somehow, like the whimsy, the whimsical aspects of it. Yeah.
0: yeah, Well, just make sure that the image you use for the playbill is symmetrical or, or yeah. you know, perfectly balanced and people will get it.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> My thanks to Catherine Cullen, who'll be spending the next four weeks remounting Stupid Head for Outside the March with co-creator and performer Britta Johnson, first is a series of live audio broadcasts starting tomorrow, Wednesday, July 7th, and then as live in-person performances bookable on porches and backyards in Toronto from July 20th to August 1st. Just look for stupidhead at outsidethemarch.ca. Thanks also to Suzanne Cheriton; she knows what she did. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Katinka Cullen, all one word: K A T I N K A C U L L E N. And you can find Bottle Rocket on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming in Canada on Crave, Stars, and the CTV app. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com where I'm hosting the Now What podcast as well as writing the weekly Now streaming newsletter to which you can still subscribe at NowToronto.Substack.com And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast S-E-M-Cast and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com Our theme song is by the last year If you like it or the show in general, say so Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us Every little bit helps, it truly does And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay home, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your shot if you can. I'll see you next time.